Welcome to Inaudible. I'm your host, Jeremy Weiland, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Reddy. On this podcast, we discuss the weird, beautiful channeled messages found in the long tradition of contact with the Confederation of Planets in service to the one infinite creator. These messages articulate a philosophy of spiritual evolution popularly known as the Law of One. Many of these messages are available to listen to on our sister podcast, Living Love and Light, available on all platforms. We seek to provide analysis and commentary on this philosophy described in these messages, identifying the common themes, and grappling with the application of this information to our human lives. However, we are not counselors, gurus, or experts of any kind, so please evaluate our words in light of our shortcomings and use your own best judgment. Thanks for listening, and uh, welcome listeners. Welcome, Nithin. How are you doing? Doing well, man. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. I'm uh, just, uh, it's gotten cold here in Richmond, Virginia. Um, We had our first light dusting of snow recently. So uh, I'm just dealing with the uh, change in weather and uh, my wife is camping tonight. uh, So she's in the mountains where it's cold. uh, So I'm just taking care of the dogs and holding up the fort, you know, all that stuff. Nice. Nice. I can say that um, it's gotten colder here in SoCal too, but uh, not as cold as Virginia cold here you know riverside is probably like um low 50s at night so yeah it's cold yeah (laughs) you have to wear a jacket (laughs) yeah 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 well you got that you got it's a lot drier out there than it is here out east with all the our humidity and stuff like that so when it's when it's wet and cold oh my god it is it just sinks down into your bones i feel like for sure yeah well uh today's episode uh we want to do on the subject of addiction um it's uh something that i think everybody in some sense has dealt with uh because it uh has to do with in my view uh the the specific nature of our uh second density brains how they connect to our mind complex and kind of how we think about uh uh comfort, pleasure, uh, uh, pursuing our desire and how we get fixated on things that sort of simplify that, uh, when really, uh, our pursuit of our desire in the spiritual sense is a much broader and more subtle thing. Um, and there's all sorts of addictions, right? So there's lots of different ways that we can go with this. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like, uh, addictions are such a big part of destructive behaviors in, in life and in society. And, um, at least here in the U S it's a you know, it's a growing problem probably in terms of specifically drug addictions. Although, as you mentioned, it does extend far beyond drugs. Um, so yeah, there's kind of like f- maybe four different areas I thought it would be useful to go over and, you know, to be fair to the listeners, We've touched upon um, the topic of drug addiction and addictive behaviors in a variety of other uh, podcasts, but we, I don't think we had a dedicated one just kind of focusing on it. So uh, I thought it'd be useful to um, kind of go into this area. So with respect to maybe how we're going to cover this topic for today, I thought it was useful. Although, Jeremy, you basically already gave a definition. Um, it's kind of useful to maybe uh, define what we mean by addiction and uh, maybe the definition is, is already given in part or whole in some of the um, channeling channel material. But in general, what do we mean when we say addiction? 
Uh, and the second area I think it'd be useful to go over is uh, how do we interact with addiction or the, the different ways we can interact w- with addiction, both addictive behaviors or addiction within ourselves and w- um, with others, other selves. The third area uh, being uh, how does addiction interact with polarization uh, and also the sinkhole of indifference. And then the fourth area being, you know, other important points we wanted to share and just takeaways um on the topic that uh, we think it's useful for to give each other and the listener. So Nathan, what is the legal definition of addiction? I don't honestly, I don't know if there's a, <laughs> a legal definition. I think actually the, the few times it comes up, it's up for the jury to decide <laughs> what that term means. Uh, it's usually I mean, does not it even, even does it even enter into legal like decisions. So like there, it's just about whether they commit the crime or not. Right. So there is one weird statute that makes it, um, a more serious crime to possess like an, uh, uh, unregistered firearm while you're addicted to a controlled substance. <laughs> so with that addiction being some sort of medical determination, I think it, you know, you can call an expert testimonies, but it's ultimately a, f- a jury f- that the fact will, de- uh, the, the uh, fact that the jury will decide. So, it's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, I, I was just wondering, since you have a legal background, um, so do we want to start with like talking about what we mean by addiction? Yeah, and see if there's any guidance in the material. I think there's at least um, some some tidbits that are helpful in kind of thinking about addiction. But uh, do you want to kind of start us off and expand on what you were saying earlier? I I can talk about uh, how I approach addiction. Yeah. Um, and it, and it, it has to do with it not in this clinical or legal or any sense, but just as a dynamic of behavior, because I think we, what we, in my opinion, what we call addiction is the sort of misallocation of habit. When we build habits that reinforce what we truly want in ourselves, that reflect our deepest desires, um, those can constrain us too. Those can uh, limit us from a full range of choices and actions we might take. Um, But that's considered good because it's driving us down the path of what it is that we desire to obtain. And so uh, that just sounds like discipline, right? Like habits, habits are kind of like when, when habits are good, it's discipline. When habits are bad, it's kind of like a inverse of discipline, right? It's like discipline honed to some other kind of, uh, a lurking, uh, uh, imbalanced desire in us, something that we are conflicted about. Um, of course, drugs and alcohol are one, uh, means by which we, uh, form habits of seeking pleasure by these things, but it can also be sex. It can be, uh, all kinds of, of behaviors, things that tend to, uh, cause us to fixate. And it's that fixation that uh, inability to think broadly about something, but you keep going down this narrow mental path whenever you have a need, whenever you have a lack that you feel, uh, that that kind of indicates it to me. What about you? No, I think that's a useful way to put it. Um, in terms of addiction, I think it's useful to break down what we mean by addiction into two areas. The external manifestations, or what you do externally when you're addicted, uh, and the internal motivations. So with respect to external motivations, um, you can have something, generally speaking, external behavior, um, even if it's if it seems like it's um, helping the person or helping others, theoretically, 
it can still be from an addictive mindset. So like, for example, you can, it's, you, it's important to be healthy, right? It's important to be, um, maybe go to the gym or get some exercise. And certainly people can do that. Two different people might do the exact same exercise uh, routine, but one might do it from an addictive internal motivation. And, and I'll talk about what I mean by that. And the other one might do it more from, uh, you know, a very much more motivated by like love and, and, um, more balanced, undistorted disciplinary approach to doing that. So what they do, what you see externally, the repetitive behavior, as you said, you know, addiction isn't, is usually associated with stuff that's externally bad, but not always. You can have seemingly good behavior, like, you know, um, going to the gym repeatedly that actually can stem from it, uh, an internal kind of a perspective of addiction. But certainly if someone's like, you know, on the street shooting up, getting needles, they probably don't have an, a, a good internal motivation. So the reverse is also true, but in general, it's, you know, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But in general, if they're doing something bad on the outside, I think it would be more difficult to find someone who's not motivated internally by an addictive mindset, right? Such as getting high on the street, shooting up with needles. I think it would be very hard to, to get to that place out of a place of discipline yeah. and love, right? Um, so there's there's a feedback uh, kind of uh, process taking place that the external behavior, if it's obviously and overtly bad, it's more likely to stem from an addictive behavior. But if the external behavior is good, it may or may not stem from an addictive behavior, if that makes sense. Um, with respect to kind of the internal motivation, you know, it uh, Ra talks about this a little bit in how... Um, you know, the, the different, uh, polarities interact with internal catalyst. Um, like for example, specifically, I think this is, this is an analogy to be sure, but specifically raw talks about how the positive entity will recognize anger, for example, and recognize the chaotic nature, of, uh, uh, nature of anger and accept it. Whereas a negative entity will, uh, also recognize the nature of anger, but uh, instead of trying to accept it, use it specifically in situations to give it uh, better power over other selves, right? So the way I see addictive behavior is it's kind of a configuration where probably the defining characteristic is that you feel an insatiable desire for it. And, you know, um, there's specifically a raw quote on on on, ins on desire and insatiability. Um, but before I get to those, uh, is there anything else you wanted to add or, or talk about when we were talking about what we mean by the term addiction? Does So I didn't get a chance to look at um, non-raw channeling. Does Quo or any other uh, confederation contact kind of speak to the definition of addiction, so to speak? Uh, there's a Hatan uh, from uh, February 13th, 1983, that talks about addiction more as a general dynamic. So when we say addiction, what I was trying to establish before is like addiction is the pejorative sense of habit, whereas discipline is the positive sense of habit. Uh, but, you know, you can throw addiction around to make a big point about uh, habits in general. Uh, in this session, Hatan, I'll just read a few parts. Hatan says... You see, my friends, the search for truth is like the addiction, which is in this instrument's mind as the topic of conversation before the meetings. You become addicted to the joy of being whole. 
This enables you to do a great deal of work, for there are no sales on truth. You will not find it cheaply. There are not bargain days, and any who promises will be promising speedy happiness and speedy despair. There are no gimmicks. There are no shortcuts. There are simply glimpses of the utmost joy, feelings of going into another world where all is as beautiful as a thought that you have just had. What, what I find interesting about this is that they're talking about this way in which desire and the search for this joy pulls us along. And if we're not careful, if we use our minds to identify that joy with something material or something or some behavior or something that is, is, is tangible, so we, we, we just keep going for that tangible thing rather than the thing it actually is, try, is trying to point to, the thing that's trying to represent, uh, then I think that's where we get uh, mixed up. The wonderful thing about, you know, let, let's be crass, being addicted to meditation, being addicted to the search for the creator is that the feedback, the reinforcement that it gives you is constantly driving you deeper and deeper into yourself and these questions about what it is I desire, what it is that joy means, what it is that I'm actually seeking get pulled into deeper and, and starker relief so that one, so that as one is pulled along by this desire, one learns to deepen the desire and to understand the self better through it. Uh, now, <laughs> I don't think that that describes being addicted to heroin. I don't think, I mean, I guess in a sense, being addicted to anything, even things that we would quote, we would call quote, quote, bad, uh, do teach you about yourself. It's not true that there's no learning that comes from addiction, uh, even uh, the, the kind that we would not wish on somebody or ourselves. Uh, but at the same time, uh, one of the great things about uh, the search for the creator in our lives, in our minds and hearts, uh, is that it really pulls us into this deeper relationship with our own selves. And at the end of the day, uh, we're stuck with that. And it's no bad thing to be addicted to that search for the self. Yeah, you know, um, I would definitely agree with the kind of how we're using the word addiction. I, I was um, maybe in, when I was kind of defining, I was putting a more of a clinical definition, but if we kind of right. make it broader that it's just this insatiable desire, because I, I thought about just simplifying um, the, the definition of addiction into just insatiable desire. And I think to a certain uh, sense, that's kind of the Hatan quote you read here. And that is also consistent a little bit with Ra's, um kind of discussion of desire. And I think it makes sense uh, as well. Um, everything is service, right? And yeah, certainly some of the paths back to the creator are longer than others. Um, you know, just, I just want to note uh, my personal secondhand experiences, I guess you could say with addiction, because I work with a lot of people who, you know, suffer from addiction, recovering addicts and things of that nature. People who are starting the addictive process, people who are in the throes of it, and then people who are trying to get clean, and then people who have gotten clean. And what's interesting is, is that almost always, because we have to do a deep dive, right, in criminal court, and people want help. We, there's, you know, they try to dig into what's causing it. There's reports to read and stuff like that. Um, usually, it's almost always some sort of like trauma that's unprocessed. And that's how the addiction kind of starts. It's like a, a way of self-medicating the pain away. But what's, re what's really interesting is that you talk to 
addict addicts and they'll say, you know, they won't describe it as avoiding pain always. Sometimes they'll say it was, it was avoiding pain, right? But they'll often describe it as it just felt so good. Like it's almost like, right? So in a certain sense, pain and pleasure are, are it's a, they're a, it's a, it's a polarity scale, right? In some sense. Yeah, they're on a continuum. It's on a yeah. continuum. So when you typically talk to people, they don't acknowledge their baseline level of pain. They, a lot of these addicts, until they get a lot of insight into their trauma, early in the process and, and while they're in the throes of it, they just say, I like the way it makes me feel. Like it feels so good without realizing, no, it's just that you feel horrible because of unprocessed stuff while sober. Right. It's, and it's, yeah. it's like you're going from negative to neutral, whereas they see it as they're going from neutral to positive. And maybe it's a subtle distinction, but it's not a subtle distinction from in terms of using where you are, where your baseline is as an indicator as to whether something's bothering you. And I see this also in other um, in the other like commonplace emotional polarity scale of like stress and relaxation. A lot of people don't realize their baseline is stressed for whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. you know, and they probably only get to what I would consider just normal state of relaxation. Forget meditative relaxation, a normal state of relaxation where they're on vacation and they put away their work phone. Right. So it's like the, the, their baseline is already uh, different. So the reason I mentioned that is that, and I, you know, I think we've all had contact with some people who have had uh, problems with addiction Yeah, is that, the more and more a person does the addictive behavior, whatever it might be, they will typically start to realize it doesn't make them feel good anymore, but they're still drawn to it. And it's, Bingo. you can explain it away chemically saying it, they get less of a high, but I also wonder if they're just starting to realize their baseline was always pretty bad <laughs> and they're just getting more in touch with the fact that their baseline is just bad. And doing the drug makes them feel more normal. And what's really interesting yeah. is that, you know, just to kind of summarize this. And the reason I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's useful is that people who are in the throes of addiction, inevitably, because all these things cost money, all addictive behaviors end up costing time or money, whether they're drugs or something else. And people who are really, really addicted to something, they end up sacrificing uh, something. And at first, maybe they sell their assets. But usually what ends up happening is if they don't want to get clean, they're still doing this addict these addictive behaviors. And they're, you know, for some people, they can keep these addictive behaviors to a small extent and still have, hold down a job. But other people, they just go completely into it, right? And for those who go completely into it, what I've noticed is it manifests as seemingly outwardly a service to self philosophy where they sacrifice everything. I've had drug addicts tell me, um, usually this is after they got clean, like they would literally sell clothes that their three-year-old daughter was gifted so that their, their three-year-old daughter didn't have like shoes or like winter clothing to get high. Like, and so it's like the pinnacle of selfishness. Now, internally, right, I think Raw talks about this, Confederation Material talks about this. You can't actually know the internal polarity of any externally manifested action, right? Like, you don't know what's actually going on. But from an outward perspective, it seems like it, it's, it's priming them to not care about doing these very selfish activities, you know? 
And then what's also interesting is when people typically get clean, they become very positive a lot of times, you know? And so it's just, it's an interesting dichotomy about how this entire process of addiction works, you know? Because, because I think that's because they have felt trapped by their, in it, to me, it almost feels like the, the pleasure that you're seeking, that short-term pleasure that you're seeking, whatever behavior or drug or whatever that you're pursuing, uh, it, it like, you need to be free of the lack of imagination that you could ever feel that good without that, or that you could ever be happy without that. Right, uh, you're you feel some lack within yourself, something missing, and you're trying to fill that. And if you can't fill it with something that will uh, satisfy you in the long run, which is, I think, the 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 healthier way of dealing with habits, where you build habits that reinforce you both in the short term feedback loop and over the long term. Right, you're just in this short term chasing cycle of uh, you know getting a dopamine rush. Uh, Quo talks about this uh, in a January 7th, 2017 uh, session. They say, the sense of being addicted to any quality, concept, or activity is that feeling within one's being that there is some lack of that which is necessary for the life to be felt as whole, as perfect, as the way it should be. This is usually because of a blockage in one of the energy centers that has become activated as a result of catalysts that you have chosen yourself to experience in order to free yourself of that which you call addiction. In other words, like it's important to recognize that addiction is a form of catalysis. It is designed to expose something that you need to understand about yourself. But I think for us, it's really scary sometimes to see people in the deep throes of addiction because it seems like, you know, if I look at somebody who's just strung out on the street, uh, I'm just like that, you know, if I were in his shoes, I would give up. Like, I don't know if I would have the strength to pull it out. And many, many do give up. Many, many die in despair like that. And it's horrible and sad. But you're right. There are also people who do pull themselves up. And they're stronger and often much more loving as a result. And that that goes for all kinds of addictions, right? Absolutely. And, and you know, uh, just to follow up on that uh, quote from Quo, you know, Raw in session 32, uh, question two, um, you know, the questioner is specifically asking about uh, – sexual polarity and catalyst and um, specific, specifically orange or yellow ray. And Ra talks about here near the end, the usual nature of sexual interaction, if one is yellow or orange ray in the primary vibratory patterns is one of blockage and then insatiable hunger due to the, due to the blockage. Uh, when uh, there are two cells vibrating in this area, the potential for polarization through sexual interaction is begun one entity experiencing the pleasure of humiliation and slavery or, and slavery or bondage, the other experiencing the pleasure of mastery and control over another entity. Uh, in this way, a sexual energy transfer of a negative polarity is experienced. So what's interesting is that it's talking obviously about sexual ins insatiability or maybe some sort of sexual addiction. But here it's specifically saying that blockage can actually give way to negative polarization. So it's it's not all blockages yeah. result in sinkhole of indifference. So it's it's fascinating in that sense, you know. 
No, I, I totally agree with you. In my notes, I have a connection between the sinkhole of indifference and the search for comfort that addiction represents. But I think you're actually right. I, I, I don't think it's the same thing as just being static in the sinkhole. I, it's, it's almost like, you know what it's almost like? It's almost like a desperation to stay in the sinkhole. It's like catalyst is pulling you out of the sinkhole. It's forcing you to make a polarized choice. And you're trying like hell. To stay in that sinkhole, to stay in that comfortable, warm cocoon of whatever behavior or drug or whatever that you're in so that you don't have to. Because look, polarization, I think we all feel deeply within that once you start to truly polarize, you are committed to the path, whatever path that is. That's when the tough stuff really starts. It's when you really have to face yourself. And I think we all, have, I think we have all had aversions to that at some point. I know I have. Yeah. I, it, nothing has taught me about that aversion so much as doing meditation every morning. Because when do I least want to meditate? When I need to do it the most. When I have the most blockage, the most turmoil in my life, and I would benefit the most from that calm ability to reflect on it or just to experience myself at it, at, at my at my core basic level. And then that's where like new patterns of thought, new strategies, new new approaches to my life can actually creatively emerge. But as long as I'm not allow, I'm not affording myself that 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 ability to to reflect like that and to give myself a chance to pull out of it, I'm going to stay stuck because I'm wanting to avoid it. It's easier to just uh, kind of do a little bit of suffering uh, in silence indefinitely rather than uh, risk a great deal of suffering by actually looking at yourself, you know? Yeah, it's, so it's interesting in that the sinkhole of indifference is definitely, you can be there for many different reasons, right? I think um, avoiding catalyst is a part of it, um, but there's many other reasons, right? Like you can have uh, distorted beliefs, well, we call them distorted, but holdovers from second density, right? Like, uh, tri- like the tribal mentality, the pack mentality that Ross specifically says it's without polarity to hold over from second density. But if, if that's like your primary motivator and that's what you focus your entire life, like morality around, you're probably not going to polarize because you're going to be stuck in that second density thinking. Right. But what's interesting is when it comes to the sinkhole of indifference, because you're trying to follow comfort it's interesting in the sense that the more the it's it's exactly as you said the more desperate you get to hold on to comfort it's it's like the catalyst builds upon itself right the catalyst of addiction builds upon it yes. it grows bigger and bigger and bigger so it's almost like um it it, it tends to pull you out you know yeah it tends to pull you out it, or or kill you, you have to exert or kill you you have to exert all the more effort, continuously more effort, yeah, to 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 get that modicum of comfort. That that first time you used the drug, or the first time you had that experience or that behavior, uh, uh, was so obvious and so plentiful. In fact, that's how I usually think about my addictive behaviors. It's some, and they talk about you know chasing the dragon, right? It's, for example. With me, it's sometimes I can find these sort of addictive behaviors with a food. For example, I have some food for the first time and it blows me away. And all I can think about after that is wanting that food again. And each time I have it again, 
it hits less and less hard, right? Yeah. It's less and less tasty. It, 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 it fills that hole less and less, uh, in that pursuit. And the more that I try to like, uh, uh, align all of my, uh, efforts to pursue it and I get less and less feedback, it's almost like the experience itself is weaning me off of the fixation. Exactly. And you know, there's one raw quote on, um, desire that I think sometimes I've seen others maybe misunderstand it a little bit. So this is a uh, session 18, question five. So it's interesting. The question, actually, I'll just read the question because um, it's a question that's, that I think a lot of people think about uh, much of the mystical or sorry, much of the mystic tradition of seeking on earth holds the belief that the individual self must be erased or obliterated and the material world ignored for an entity to reach nirvana, as it's called, or enlightenment. What is the proper role of the individual self and its worldly activities in aiding an entity to grow more into the law of one? I am Ra, the proper role of the entity in this, sorry, the proper role of the entity is in this density to experience all things desired, to then analyze, understand, and accept these experiences, distilling from them the love light within them. Nothing shall be overcome. That which is not needed falls away. This orientation develops due to the analysis of desire. And then it kind of talks on and on that uh, it's unwise uh, to overcome is that overcoming is an imbalanced action, creating difficulties and balancing in the time-space continuum. So it's, it's interesting because it kind of begs the question a little bit in that the proper role of this entity is in this density to experience all things desired. And I think I've touched upon this before. Um, In my opinion, you can't, you don't know what you truly desire unless you're willing to be extremely um, like self-honest and have a great amount of like self-honesty. So I often say this, right? Like, and and I've, (laughs) I've actually had discussions about this and we might've covered in a previous uh, podcast that the, th- that the Blu-ray is way more about surface level, is way, way deeper than just mere surface level on- honesty. Like lying and falsity might be one end of the polarity, but honesty isn't the exact same thing as truth. And the other end of the polarity of the spectrum of falsity and lying is truth. Mere honesty is not enough. So what I mean by that is this. Let's say you're a person who um, you're not very self-aware, or maybe you're very self-aware, uh, maybe someone like one of us, and we're just having a really, really bad day, really bad day, bad week, bad month. And we've had a lot of unprocessed catalysts as we come into work. And our coworker just asked some innocent question, but maybe they do it in a, a tone of voice, or maybe they ramble on a little bit longer. And you just get frustrated. And you're like, look, can't you just like, like my time is important. Can't you just, you know, you lash out at them a little bit. You're like, look, you're so annoying. <laughs> you're taking 10 minutes to ask like a, a five second question. This is a completely made up example. I don't think I've ever done this. So, and then you say what's on your mind. You're like, look, I, you know, I think that if you were just more concise, you'd, you'd, you'd um, get along with others better in the workplace. When you say that you might be uh, practicing surface level honesty. That's what your mind actually thinks at, at the surface level at the highest level of consciousness, or not the highest level, but the most surface level. But if you had actually been doing the daily practice, the contemplation, like maybe you're upset because, you know, your mother has cancer and that's really bothering you. And it's really making your mood at work really, really bad. 
if you had done that practice of self-honesty and done the contemplation, you would have realized that your anger has nothing to do with the person asking the question. So just like truth is deeper than surface level honesty, desire is, in my opinion, the spiritual desire, what Ra is talking about here, to experience all things desire, to analyze, understand, accept these experiences. It's not surface level desire, right? Like, I think, you know, without getting into too much trouble, I think at least as guys, we understand this, that you can be in a committed relationship, but sometimes you can't control like a ephemeral momentary surface level thought about, hey, someone else is attractive, right? Right. But that's not your truth. That's not your true, what you truly desire. It's just a surface level thing. It's almost like this understanding that there's a 2D animal that we live with that is like our lizard-like brain that lashes out, that has sexual desires even or, or attraction, even though we're in a committed relationship and we have no true desire to cheat or step out. So it's, it's, it's just understanding that true desire and true truth come from knowing oneself. And it's not just like, oh, it, at the time it seemed like a good idea or at the time this is what my ego or very uh, primal part of my brain um, believed. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. It's what I think is really interesting from this uh, spiritual point of view is the way uh, that repression works within us. Uh, because what happens is these energies that we are repressing find their outlet in some way. And I think in this surface level honesty, what you're articulating is the way that we can allow for the release of the pressure that's building up within without it being the true, uh, uh, the, the, the true uh, uh, confrontation of that thing within, the actual thing within. It's just letting off some of the, the pressure, some of the force. And we feel like even in conflict, we can feel very rewarded by that. We can feel rewarded and relieved by letting that pressure out. And, the, and, it, and it's not bad to uh, relieve the pressure, except to the extent uh, that it uh, you know, has impacts on other people that are negative. Uh, the point of having a spiritual discipline uh, that you work at on a regular basis is so you're constantly having this confrontation with these things within yourself uh, that you may not really like, that you may not really want to face, and yet you still bring yourself honestly and tenderly and gingerly to the task of facing yourself, accepting yourself, and then moving on, right? So that then when these pressures do find the release, they're not coming at you from sideways. They're not coming out of nowhere. You, you, you have a decent grasp of the full 360-degree uh, nature of yourself. Uh, it's, uh, it's about recognizing that you are a complete and total self, and therefore you have to be in charge of that full and total self and not just the parts that you want to represent. Uh, there was some, there was a quote from March 7th, 2004 that talked about this in the context of addiction. It might be uh, useful to read this. Kuo says, we would suggest that if one may take a step back from a specific codependency or addiction that is specifically geared to one person, maybe in this case, Kuo is talking about codependency, but they're conflating it with addiction. Uh, being dependent on a person would probably be the same thing if it's goes to a negative part, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Anyway, they say one may perhaps see that in each incarnational pattern, there is that tendency to divide the self into the good self and the bad self. 
the light self and the dark self, the peaceful self and the disturbed self, and so forth, creating out of a universal and infinitely graded being with no seam or rip in the makeup of that being, a being that has separations and isolations of parts of the self from other parts of the self, so that there seems to be more going on, shall we say, than in truth there really is. It is so endemic to your peoples that we would suggest that the term, that instead of the term codependency, one may perhaps think more generally in terms of addictions. For the addiction to pain is no more of a puzzle than the addiction to any substance that one begins to see as not being helpful for the self. Why would entities with good sense and good balance choose to inculcate within the self a continuance of pain in order to feel more alive? It is simply because it is observed. Sorry, it is simply because it is the observed method upon your planet and the culture in which you enjoy living for entities to embrace those things which are destructive, such as overwork, a dependence on substances, and other imbalances because they seem to be appropriate and even necessary for the functioning of the organism and the being, in the job, in the family, and in the environment. The habit of looking outward for meaning of depending upon ideas, people, or things for a feeling of rightness and a sense of meaning is that which has been accepted among your peoples as the appropriate way of behaving and thinking. I don't think I could have picked a Kuho that reinforced what you just said better than that. Um, it is insane because we are looking outside for something that we're afraid to look for within ourselves. And it's that inner lack that we need to fill. And I, I, I love this quote because this, it specifically talks about something that I was going to raise. Um, so all of us have many addictive behaviors, but I wanted to give an example of one behavior that um, I've gotten better about. But it's amazing how obvious it is to me it's an addiction. When I'm really stressed out about some work, and I think I've mentioned this before. I don't know if we mentioned it on the podcast. When I'm really stressed out about some something that I'm working on, one moment, um, usually it's because I'm right there, like at the computer working on it, right? But I'm talking about like super stress. I'm like, I'm so stressed and I can feel it and I know it. I'll just basically teleport. Like I won't physically teleport, but like, I'm just thinking, man, I'm so stressed. And then this has happened multiple times. Next thing I know, I'm at the fridge with the door open. Like, I, yep. and I'm just like, what the, and I'm like, I, I recognize it now. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? And in my mind, I'm actually thinking about the work. But it's like my body somehow just brought me to the fridge and like there's a part of my mind looking for some food and I'm like, holy moly, this is not good. And now I've, 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 you know, I use it as a sign to help me um, transform my approach to work. And, you know, I think I've talked about this before that for me, it was being less um, slave driving towards my own work and be like, look, you can be disciplined about work and you can also say, look, if you really, really, really need to take a break and not work late today, it's okay. And you just give yourself that opportunity. You usually won't even take it, but just having like, that's one of many techniques, right? So it, it, why I love this is that <laughs> I feel like Loki repeatedly, multiple confederation sources have told us that one of the, I would say one of the biggest stumbling blocks to people evolving on planet earth is our work culture. Like Ra has specifically called out saying it is very difficult to polarize when you're working from dawn to dusk or, uh, you know, uh, which is only 
dawn to dusk is only usually 12 hours on average, right? Depending on the time of year and stuff like that, where are you on on the planet? But even that, Ra's saying like, you know, that's way, way, way too much. Uh, And given that we have an eight hour workday, but then we also have commute time, we're pretty close to that whole, you know, working 10, 12 hours, or at least not having a chance to be at home contemplating due to commute, due to working eight hours plus the commute, right? A lot of, and a lot of people, we have jobs, right? But how many people who are on lower income have to work more than 40 hours, multiple jobs, right? How many people who are higher income are salaried at 40 hours, but they never, because it's a salary, you work, you're usually working on average more, way more than 40 hours, right? So it's- Right, yep. But I mean, it's it's like, it's so ingrained in our society, right? Like parents, family members, spouses, um, even friends, it's- I feel like most of my, most everyone I know in their twenties accepted that this was just how work was going to be and did not start questioning this until they started having a family until they started having other things that made them perhaps polarize more positively and realize, look, there's more to life than just amassing wealth and power through job. Yeah. And, and it's, and it, and I agree with you that it is often uh, only when one has the time and space to truly and safely, safely reflect upon one's life, that that you'll even see these patterns at all. For most people who overwork, they're just, that that has become who they are. They're addicted to it. Recognize, yes, and they don't recognize that how much their need for that is a trap, and it prevents them from the very thing that they think work is giving them. Um. It's, uh, it becomes this habit and it becomes this inability to really think creatively and outside of the box about your own life. And so you're not really in charge of it. Your life is living you rather than you living your life. And to be fair, it's not merely just a, a cultural belief. The overwork is interwoven into, I think, the planetary consciousness because a, part, a big part of it is like, especially if you're lower income, but even if you're not lower income, survival fear is often at the base of much of the overwork. And the reason I say that is that it's oh, yeah. very directly uh, part of overworking if you are working two jobs and you're low income and you just need to do it, right? But think about it. Why do we as a country care about having a higher GDP, being more productive? Because ultimately it comes back to not just prosperity in general, but it comes back to that allows us to have a stronger military, right? Have a stronger country, which, because we need to, if we don't fund the military, spend all this money on, you know, um, securing our borders and everything, we are afraid that we won't be able to survive. It's basically a survival fear, right? Yeah. Uh, there, there's been, uh, I think there's been studies done that show that under feudalism in the middle ages, mm-hmm. people actually worked less than we work now. Yeah. One of the reasons for that may be that what it took to make them comfortable and satisfied, their entire idea of what the horizon of pleasure was, is so much simpler than what we have now. Now we, we can't be happy unless we have internet, we have electricity, we have TV, we have phone, we have, you know, uh, uh, a huge McMansion. Um, you know, we go on vacation a lot. Those things definitely do give some, some small amount of pleasure 
There's no doubt about that. Uh, but it's not that holistic pleasure that we're really seeking right. that I think sometimes in, in simpler, more idyllic times was easier to, it, it took less imagination to get there. It took less uh, work to get there for sure. And one could just be happy. And, and I will say also that in working less, you have more time for contemplation. But remember, at that time, you didn't have the total right. uh, marketization of all aspects of life like we do now. I try so hard to keep the politics <laughs> out of this podcast, but I think in this aspect, it really is true. You had a more overarching idea of what the good life was that was grounded in something that at least approached spirituality. And a lot of our work and a lot of our need to fill the hole inside comes from uh, our general culture's inability to 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 have something uh, on the order of the spiritual that past people had. Absolutely, and and I think there, there's a go ahead. So no, you and I think I'm I'm so glad you mentioned that because when I said survival, it, it is more broadly red ray. So it's your daily, it's your daily life. Like, what does that look like? Can you enjoy it? And a lot of times, all those things that you mentioned that we see as uh, necessities today for our daily life and daily enjoyment, they weren't at all ne necessary. And, and, you know, Ron right. and, and uh, other Confederation talk uh, sources talk about how our gadgets, um, you know, that don't involve other selves are typically just distractions, right? Cause they don't really activate their solo gadgets. So, um, and look, look, I'm not saying you should never play like a video game or have a gadget, but, you know, understand that this is not something that if it's used in abundance, that's going to, uh, that's conducive to spiritual growth, right? Because if, you, if you're playing a video game that doesn't involve anyone else, that's not going to activate the yellow ray. Maybe if it's a great story, maybe if it's a great story, well-written, it can activate a lot of the energy centers. Like if there's a narrative to it, like reading a novel almost, but if it's just like, like an action oriented game where it's just like a, you know, maybe something where you're not using your mind at all. There's no story to it. It's, and there's no, if you're not interacting with others, there's no multiplayer aspect. It's not going to activate any of your rays except maybe the red, right? It's going to be red. Um, and maybe orange in that, like you're trying to beat your own high score or something, but it's interesting in that a lot of these electronic things, a lot of the uh, electronic devices we have, and even certain, I would say like, um, you know, certain television shows, depending on what the show is, there, there probably isn't a lot of yellow ray activation by watching people. Some of them will have that, but some won't, right? It'll just be like mere entertainment. So it's absolutely true. With the gadgets in particular, you see how technology can insinuate itself deeply into the habitual nature of our minds. How many of us, first thing when we wake up, reach for our phones? Mm -hmm. How many of us, when we're waiting in line or whatever, what do we do? We reach for our phones. And it's just coming. It, this is just not something that other cultures had to deal with. It just didn't have to deal with this as much. Uh, there might have been like, you know, uh, addictions to other things, but we have such a plethora of them. And, and frankly, you know, it isn't unless you get that leisure time that we were talking about earlier that you even have the ability to reflect on these things unless some trauma or right. some like hardship happens that forces you to do that. Right. Uh, and I really, I really do think that you uh, nailed it when you were talking about uh, the work culture, because I think that work culture came into view very much as um, 
a kind of cultural attachment or honoring of a spiritual life went away around the 19th century as capitalism came into view. Um, I don't want to go on a anti-capitalism rant, but I'm just <laughs> saying like, it's interesting how, you know, as Nietzsche put it, you know, we, we, we killed God in the 19th century and what has replaced it. Yeah. Nothing so far. Uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, an, an author who was writing when I was uh, in high school, he wrote like infinite jest and stuff like that. He gave a, um, uh, a, a commencement address at uh, some school and he gave a speech that really made an impact on me. And it talks a lot about this. And he says, everybody worships. And, and, and when you, when we talk about worship and you talk about an addiction, I feel like those are somewhat similar things because it's a striving towards mm-hmm. something, right? It's a striving that you do out of a, out of a recognition of your own lack. We strive towards God because we recognize that's where our fulfillment is. Anyway, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship and an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the four noble truths or some intangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will all and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it, but there are all different kinds of freedom. And the kind that is most precious you will not hear much talked about in the great outside world of winning and achieving and displaying. The real important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness, and discipline, and effort, and being able to truly care about other people, and to sacrifice for them over and over, in myriad petty, little, unsexy ways, every day. That is real freedom. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant, gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. Yeah. Well I know a lot of people have criticisms of his writing, but I, that just blew me away when I first read that because it nails it. 
And it doesn't have to be some like specific political economic criticism of our social system or economic system or anything like that. It's just these ways in which we use our minds to fixate on things instead of paying dang attention <laughs> and waking up. Yeah, in a certain sense, it's um, it's a reluctance to be responsible for kind of your your spiritual growth to a certain extent. Um, yeah, it's it's total freedom that we have now that we're released from the uh, tyranny of the church, we're released from the tyranny of the king. Right? We have this freedom, and what do we do with this freedom? That's the question. What do we do with this freedom? Yeah, And like he's saying, like that workaday world that you talk about, it's going to reinforce a certain concept of freedom. And we're the ones who have to decide when we go deep within, do we think that's freedom? Or would we rather exercise the agency that we have to understand a different kind of freedom? You know, it's kind of like, you know, Jesus saying, you know, uh, take on my yoke. Uh, carry my burden. My yoke is, is light. You know, it's because once you get out of your own dang head and your own gnawing desires and your own, oh, I crave this and I want that. And you start thinking out about what's going on outside of you. What are the other selves out there? The other me's that have needs and also are just like me. How can, how can serving them, if, if nothing else, it gets you out of this need to to always be like serving yourself and like the, the, you never can serve yourself enough. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now I think that, uh, on the, the genuine polarized serve the self path that's turned into a source of power, right? That inability to ever exhaust the hunger becomes a way to be able to focus power very squarely and strongly. But if we're positing service to, uh, if we're, <laughs> if we're polarizing service to others, that's not what we want. That is always going to drag us back into the sinkhole right. where it's just going to be about getting to a neutral place of comfort where we don't ever have to be disturbed and our freedom will be to sit in our couches and watch TV while we eat popcorn and smoke weed. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's almost like, um, you know, people who do addictive behaviors because, well, often because there's some trauma that they don't want to, I think at some level they just don't want to, or don't feel like they're able to, to heal it. And when I say they don't want to, or they're not able to, it's, it's a, it's from the perspective of, they just want it gone. Like they just don't want to deal with it. They don't want to be a human being that has to process and deal with the trauma. They just want it gone. Right. And the drugs will take it away. And it's and the reason I mentioned this point is is that there's a sense of maybe there's certainly a sense of victimhood. I find that in my interactions, but it's like a it's a sense of they just don't want to engage with the third density experience of processing catalysts if this for whatever catalyst that causes them to do these addictive behaviors, right? And the reason I mention that is that. I see this a lot in some of my cases and I want to ask your, and I think I've asked you off the, off the air about this, but I want to ask you on the air about this. Um, I've seen cases and I've also seen people in real life and I'm sure you have too, that they will be, they will be quote blackout, but they'll be blackout under the influence, completely aware, like, like not half asleep. Right. 
usually it's a mix yeah. of stimulants with depressants or sometimes it's just that's just alcohol and they just have a, such a high tolerance that they won't be like asleep they'll be blackout and doing stuff and i wonder is that is that related to their overall kind of desire to not like engage or deal with stuff because i a lot of these times maybe sometimes they're lying about being blackout but other times i truly believe that they don't remember anything even though they look pretty, I mean, they looked under the influence, but they looked aware, like not like half asleep and doing stuff, you know? I think it's this, I think it, when you confront those things that you don't like about yourself, it's not necessarily a simple thing. It's a very nuanced, uh, tangled system of energy distortions, of ideas, of half thoughts that have been buried, maybe uh, traumas that have not been like really looked at. And, and, and therefore it, it, it's, it takes a lot of effort. It takes, mm-hmm. there's some complexity involved in untangling all of this. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just take a pill? Wouldn't it be nice if we could just sleep with someone or uh, binge on a, a, a gallon of ice cream? That's, much simpler and it becomes this kind of totem the behavior or the drug where it becomes kind of totem if i have this i'm okay regardless of all this other stuff that's inside me if i have this i can go on to the next day uh it's this fixation and this uh, reduction of the complexity to the single thing and it makes it easier to kind of like pull ourselves along rather you know we can let this thing uh move us through our lives without really paying attention without really being aware completely because that it's painful in it and it takes effort and it's it's not easy and it's exactly what i was talking about before where I tend to try to avoid meditation and have an aversion to mm-hmm. reflection at the very moment that I need it the most, I, right? I'm the exact, the exact same way. So I totally understand. These are the things that you find out about yourself when you put a daily meditation regimen in place. You start seeing when you want to meditate mm-hmm. and when you don't. And it tells you something about yourself. And frankly, the addictive behaviors that we talked about, even the really destructive ones, are telling people something about themselves. But look, in order for communication to occur, for the message to be received, you have to be paying attention. Right. And there is a sense in which a lot of these addictive behaviors become distractions. It's it's a, a distraction is a simple thing we can fixate on so we don't have to deal with the panoply of different uh, tangled webs of energy, ideas, all that stuff that really we need to sift through. And here's the thing. We will get there. We will sift through all this stuff one way or another. There's right. an infinite amount of time in this universe. Right. So that was one of the things that really uh, helped me break some of my habits is when I realized, you know, I, I'm the only one that's holding me up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. But specifically because I'm still trying to understand this, this whole blackout phenomenon that happens more with actual substances and addictive behavior. You know, it won't happen when you're binging on a gallon of ice cream. Yeah, sorry. I kind of pulled away no, from no, that no, point because no, no. I didn't really quite understand what you meant by this. No, like uh, where you going? I've just noticed patterns like when people blackout, they'll typically, uh, maybe it's just mere amnesia, but there's 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 characteristics to blacking out that seem very common and to seem to imply that there's something maybe a bit more substantial taking place other than mere loss of memory. Usually what I've noticed is that the person who blacks out, 
they'll do something that's typically not characteristic of their personality. It won't just be like, oh, it's Joe. He's just blacked out and he was just Joe. Typically, it's blacked out. Joe is different, right, than sober, very, very different than sober Joe in terms of a lot of things. The, the great, one of the qualities of drugs or alcohol or some substance is that, and I've seen this myself because I like to smoke weed. And once you smoke, now it's in you. Now there's no longer the choice to be sober. You have to get through this. And so now if, if you were, if you, if you were at a point where you're like, I can go meditate and reflect on myself, or I can go talk to my wife, or I can go do something productive that I know I need to do, or I can, uh, I can, you know, you know, drink half of this, uh, uh, fifth of J- of Jack Daniels. And then I'm not going to be good for anything. It takes the pressure off, right? right? Like now I know I'm drunk, so there's nothing I can do. I have for the next couple of hours, I'm off the hook. I think I and, and I think when you when you see that blackout behavior, that's kind of like the full circle of this uh, desire to escape responsibility. Whatever that responsibility, at the end of the day, it's responsibility for our own progress, mm-hmm. spiritual, uh, social, whatever, however we conceive of success, and it's this way to sort of like uh, rule that out. So now that's no longer on the, in the cards. We have to, we, we, we have to go do the thing that we know is bad, but Hey, we're in this state of mind now. And and I'm glad we kind of, um, went deep into this because normally I think when we first started this podcast, you know, sometimes in these podcasts, uh, we, at least we, I sometimes suggest a topic or you suggest a topic and it's, we develop our thoughts as it's going along. Right. So, you know, at first I felt like addictive behavior is really, revolved around not uh, wanting comfort instead of dealing with catalysts. But there's also like a more subtle point is that it, it generally seems that addictive behavior also involves like not wanting to be responsible, which is a little bit different than slightly different than, than wanting comfort. Right. It's just, it's, it's not wanting to be responsible for I agree. whatever. I, it's the comfort of childhood. The okay. comfort of things being simple, uncomplicated. Uh, mom will always be there to give you lemonade. Dad will always be there to you know pull you out of whatever crap you get into. It is a it, it is a I think that aversion to responsibility is heavily involved because things because responsibility is complex. And you know what? Even if we're responsible, sometimes we screw up. Sometimes we don't meet that. And that is just as important of a spiritual catalytic experience as uh, acting on the responsibility uh, successfully. We have to face the fact that if we try, we might fail. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, we're coming up on time. I actually think we hit a lot of the points with, even though we weren't, we weren't as organized as I set out to be. Um, I think we actually hit a lot of, on, on a lot of the points that we, uh, that I had written down here. You know, it's funny because I always compile, I, I always compile some notes before we record one of these things. And then 95% of the time, i never look at them. I never use them. I really just like, it's almost like this homework that I did before to get me in the frame of mind. But this time I actually was able to like, look at these notes and go off of them. Uh, you know, it's just interesting when we record a session that isn't uh, centered on one 
transcript, but mm-hmm. we're going off the different things. Ryan and I used to do that a lot. So it's, we just got to, we just got to mix it up, keep ourselves limber. So as we're uh, closing this out, kind of, uh, do you have any other points you wanted to raise or just some takeaways as to um, the contemplative listener who wants to maybe learn a bit more of how to uh, recognize and handle and heal their own addictive behaviors? Well, uh, there was one thing about healing, and I don't know how powerful an idea this is, but it it might be worth thinking about if one of our listeners is dealing with an addictive or fixated behavior that they'd like to change. Uh, and it's from uh, a November 13th, 2010 Kuo session. Um, they say, and they're, uh, they're asking about, um, what is this? The question is, uh, I'm really touched by what you said, and this question is somewhat close to the boundary of free will, but I want to ask if one intends to keep the heart open, then is it usual for spiritual seekers or anyone perhaps to then sense or feel, or if there is some sort of inner knowing that one is actually doing it and the heart is open? I guess I'm asking about either physical sensation or an inner knowing that one is walking on the path. So how do we like orient ourselves is how I see this. And Kuo says, Uh, In a way, what we are suggesting is a great deal like forming a habit. This instrument has read in articles about such things that a habit takes about three weeks to make or perhaps three weeks to break. Those three weeks seem to be spent in failing to break that habit, wanting not to break the habit, yearning to go back to the old habit and so forth. Yet if there is the intention set to break the habit and there is a success in refraining from the behavior of the habit, gradually the mind becomes free to think of other things than the habit. The addiction has been downgraded as the one known as Ken would say, they're talking about uh, Ken Wilbur, I believe. Uh, The addiction has been downgraded to a preference. And then the mind is free to take up a positive habit where before there was a habit of which you did not approve. So I guess to bring it full circle is to recognize uh, this is all involved from an archetypal point of view, in perhaps the experience of body, if you look at that tarot card and you see uh, the the maiden uh, closing the jaws of the lion, this is about coming into this relationship with these bodily mechanisms. I, addiction is definitely a bodily thing that then gets exacerbated by the mind, in my view. But it's our bodies that want this comfort, that want this habit, that want this programming. Uh, that want to just follow a script. And so we can, that, that can be seen as a downside of embodiment, a downside of being incarnate in a uh, biological uh, sack of flesh. But I just want to say also that it can also be used for positive ends. We can build habits of meditation. We can build habits of expressing uh, gratitude to others. We can become uh, capable of building habits of, of exercise and all of these things, we can use this script following uh, uh, tendency of our bodies for good things. And so instead of just looking at it as this morass of uh, pleasures and uh, 
uh, nice things that we have to try to avoid because we don't want to be addicted to them. It's really about figuring out like that first uh, Hatan was talking about. How do we get addicted to the creator and the love and light? Because that's going to feed us. That's going to free us. Everything else, like David Foster Wallace said, is going to keep us in this trap where we're going to keep finding something that doesn't, we're going to keep searching for something that doesn't feed us. I guess that's where I'd like to leave it. And also, please reach out for help if you don't think that you can do this yourself. Uh, The body is difficult to deal with sometimes, and it's no knock on you or your polarity, or your uh, sincerity as a seeker, or anything like that, if you need to reach and get the help of an expert, please do that. And if you don't want to do that, if you just need somebody to talk to, there's a contact form on our site, inaudible.show. I talk to seekers all the time. Reach out. Let's have a conversation. Um, Let's talk about it. And hey, even if you're not addicted, I'd love to hear from you. I know Nathan would too. Absolutely. And you know, just the other things that I would just leave with the, the listener is... We've talked about this many times, the daily practice, uh, specifically, there's many channelings on this, but I always like Raw's, which is uh, the daily practice being one. And when we call it daily, certain aspects of this are daily, but a lot of these things can be done constantly. So exercise one is the moment contains love, right? And to really consciously try to see that love and, and try to you know, understand your distortions and whatever is happening through that exercise two. the universe is one being when you view another mind, body, spirit complex, see the creator three gaze into the mirror, see yourself and see the creator Four, um, gaze at all of creation, like basically everything inanimate objects and see that as the creator. Uh, and then specifically to have uh, a predilection is what Ross says towards meditation, contemplation, or prayer. Um, because that way you can get down from, you know, the conscious mind to the deeper layers of your mind. Uh, another specific uh, technique that Ra talks about, and by the way, that is in what I just talked about was in le- uh, session 10, question 14. Another great technique that I, frankly, I want to use more of is in Ra's uh, session 41, question 21. You mentioned in the last session that fasting was a method of removing unwanted thought forms. Can you expand on this process and explain a little bit more how it works? I am raw. This, as all healing techniques, must be used by a conscious being. That is a being conscious that is ridding of excess and unwanted material from the body complex is the analogy to ridding the mind or spirit of excess or unwanted material. Thus, the one discipline or denial of the unwanted portion as an appropriate part of the self is taken through the tree of the mind down through the trunk to subconscious levels where the connection is made and thus the body, mind, and spirit then in unison express denial of the excess or unwanted spiritual or mental material as a part of the entity. All then falls away in the entity while understanding, if you will, and appreciating the nature of the rejected material as a part of the greater self. Nevertheless, through the action of the will, purifies and refines the mind-body-spirit complex, bringing into manifestation the desired mind complex or spirit complex attitude. And uh, just to mention once again, we've talked about this so much of um, the path of polarity and just understanding this reality uh, is understanding paradox, right? So on the one hand, you're refining and purifying yourself by in a certain sense, rejecting certain aspects of the mind, but you still accept that it's a part of the greater mind 
right? It's a very paradoxical kind of position. And Ra talks about right. this elsewhere. Um, how can you reject the offering of a negative entity? A negative entity might offer you slavery. And, you know, Ross says you should actually reject that in a certain sense because you couldn't maintain your own path. So it's, it's, it is a bit of a paradox, but a lot of these things, the deeper you go into this practice, you'll realize understanding and embracing paradox, understanding and embracing the opposite polarity of concepts, right? Can't have truth without falsity. You can't have beauty without ugliness. Um, it's essential. And, you know, the final thing I just want to leave with the viewer is, um, you know, I've had many clients who did uh, 12 steps and I never really looked into 12 steps, right? Alcoholics Anonymous. But over the, over the course of years and uh, thousands of cases, occasionally I'd have to put on a hearing to convince the court that my client is truly interested in 12 steps. And, you know, one of the things is I just get them on the, have them on the stand and be like, recite the 12 steps. And that's what I actually was literally in the middle of the case. I started reading into this and this is after I became spiritual. I'm like, actually a lot of these 12 steps are actually very consistent with the daily exercises um, of the law of one uh, of what Ra specifically mentions and, and really just a contemplative approach to your own catalyst. So just briefly uh, just, just to go over them. Admit that you you were powerless over alcohol, that your lives had become unmanageable. So it's like recognizing the catalyst. Come to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. It's in a certain sense understanding you have the individual self, but like the greater self, right? May made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. Um, once again, it's like seeing the Creator, right? Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. It's digging deep into the catalyst, what you've done when through these addictive behaviors. That's you can't you can't process something until you acknowledge all aspects of it, right? Admitted admitted or sorry, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another being the exact nature of our of our wrongs, right? That's basically forgiveness, understanding. Um we're ready entirely to have God remove all these defects of characters. Once again, it's like praying for assistance, right? Humbly asked him yep. to remove our shortcomings, made a list of all persons we had harmed and become willing to make amends to all them. I mean, that's just, these are things that I do when I process my catalyst. I'm like, oh, I hurt someone. So I thought it was fascinating that the AA talks about this. Made direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Continue to take personal inventory and uh, and wherever we are wrong, promptly admitting to it. Sought through prayer and meditation. Literally, it talks about prayer and meditation. To improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Uh, once again, the archetypes talk about how we are a vessel for the one infinite creator. Having a spiritual awakening as a result, result of these steps, uh, carry these this message to other alcoholics and practice these principles in all of our affairs. So I thought you thought it was fascinating because I actually didn't, I never read, read the uh, the 12 steps up until well, well into my legal career and after I become spiritual. So there is, there is help out there. And, you know, 12 steps, I feel like a lot of people don't take seriously, but, and this is just purely from my experience with clients and also my analysis of the law of one confederation material, the 12 steps. And now obviously I don't know any individual like organization and how it's actually practiced on the, in the field, but conceptually, these are very, very consistent uh, with confederation philosophy. And I think it's very useful to try, to try these things out if you're struggling. 
yeah, it's easy for us to look at it in light of the philosophy and the uh, teachings that we all adhere to and to see the parallels. I think a lot of people oppose it because they don't like the legal system underwriting a Christian faith. But I think I think most people who are into the law of one are more are, are, are less interested in uh, adhering or rejecting a specific religious path and are instead trying to find sort of technologies and approaches that can help them reckon with the energies and distortions within. So I hear where you're coming from. Well, thank you, Jeremy, for joining me on this Wednesday night. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I'm just uh, I'm glad you could join me for this conversation. Yeah, we put off recording this a couple of times because I was afraid that we just didn't have enough to say. But as I see the counter at an hour and 15 minutes, I feel that we have created uh, sufficient content. Oh, God, I hate that word content. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you, Nathan. Uh, always a pleasure. Uh uh, folks, we are going to continue to be recording podcasts. It, it looks like um, monthly has become kind of the norm. Uh, we just try to fit them in with, when we can. And, uh, you know, the holidays are kind of a tough time to do it. But we're going to keep churning them out. You keep letting us know if we're hitting the mark or not or what we can do to speak to your spiritual journey. Uh, we would love to hear about that. Inaudible.show is our site. And we have a contact form there. Let us know. Uh, have a wonderful holiday, whatever you uh, celebrate, and stay in the love and light.